...effective in their early efforts toward the subject, its scrappier entrepreneurs had been on the case for decades. By 1893, more than 500 business colleges already existed across the United States. A number of America's early entrepreneurial success stories attended such colleges, including Henry Ford and John D. Rockefeller. Across the Atlantic, schools of commerce and administration had been around for more than a hundred years, with schools in Portugal, Germany, and France, all established in the mid-1700s. Said James in 1890, One of the most striking facts of modern civilization is the rapidly growing importance of the business, as distinct from the professional classes. This is plain enough even in Europe, where it is still kept back by the predominance of the court, the army and the church, and where the bar and physics still maintain their high position. It is, however, beyond all doubt true in this country where the great merchant prince, the railroad president, the great manufacturer and banker have succeeded to the place of power once held by the great orator, statesman, lawyer, or clergyman. The professional class is losing ground, the business world gaining it. Whether for weal or woe, the control of government, of society, of education, of the press, yes, even of the church, is slipping more and more rapidly into the hands of the business classes. And it is this class which, to an ever-increasing extent, will dominate our political and social life. James's point was news to no one. Indeed, as Harvard's administrators grappled with how to credibly position their new school as the first of its kind, American business was well into a decades-long period of growth and increased cultural prominence. The nation's rail network grew from 53,000 miles in 1865 to 193,000 miles in 1900. Annual steel production was going through the roof, climbing from 77,000 tons in 1870 to 11.2 million at the turn of the century. There were 140,000 factories in the country in 1865. By 1900, there were 512,000. And this was a new kind of factory, Whereas an old-school New England mill employed just a few hundred people, the Ford Motor Company's first plant had 15,000 on the payroll. The population was also transforming to meet the needs of the new economy. Between 1870 and 1900, the U.S. population rose from 40 million to 76 million, while the population of its cities grew from 10 million to 30 million. In the second half of the 19th century, San Francisco doubled in size. Milwaukee tripled, and Denver grew twentyfold. Boston, home to Harvard and already one of America's most important cities, saw its population surge as well, more than doubling from 250,000 in 1870 to 560,000 by 1900. The reach of business grew right along with the spread of the people. The mass market of the United States was in the process of relegating the concept of the local economy to the ash heap of history. And almost overnight, a new national economy, dominated by gigantic megacorporations, was doing just as James had observed, threatening the traditional authority structures of the professions, law, medicine, clergy, army, while raising a whole host of unprecedented social problems and organizational challenges. In 1888, President Rutherford B. Hayes wrote in his diary of the challenges ahead, This is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people no longer. It is a government of corporations, by corporations, and for corporations. That included Harvard, which, having been chartered in 1636, was America's oldest corporation. The next year, in 1889, 
the Wall Street Journal was founded. In the span of a single generation, the United States had been transformed from an agrarian to an industrial society. In 1870, the country accounted for 23% of the world's industrial production. By 1913, it was at 36%, more than Great Britain. As historian Alfred Chandler later wrote, the sudden appearance of massive companies of unprecedented complexity called for the creation of a new type of business enterprise, operated by teams of salaried managers. In his opus, Scale and Scope, The Dynamics of Industrial Capitalism, Chandler documents the three-part evolution of large firms into multinational giants that was taking place as Harvard argued with itself over whether true change was truly afoot. Part 1, an investment in production facilities large enough to exploit a new technology's potential economies of scale or scope. Part 2, an investment in a national and international marketing and distribution network so that